Well, before we begin our time in God's Word, I want to let you know that next Sunday is going to be a very special Sunday because we're going to be ordaining Cameron Contrastano. Those of you who have been under his ministry as a student pastor out at Stone Oak, as well as uh, his involvement here in the college ministry and various things, Cameron will be getting ordained next Sunday. He's finished his master's degree at Dow Theological Seminary. He's been through the ordination boards with our pastors and our elder board. And so next week he'll be ordained as well as preaching his sermon. So those of you who are worshiping with us online, especially part of the Stone Oak family, we'd love to have you here to celebrate with Cameron next Sunday in person. Well, when we started our series in Daniel, I shared that this was not just a book of prophecy. I talked to you about how it would be a book that would talk to us about prayer. It would also show us how to live godly lives in the midst of the the world in which we live. As you'll recall, Daniel and his three friends were captives in a pagan land. And we've seen all of that in the first six chapters. And as we turn now to Daniel chapter 7, we're coming to the end of one section and really starting a new one. At the end of chapter 7, we're going to move back from the Aramaic language to Hebrew. And it's going to go beginning today in chapter 7 to really dealing specifically with prophecy. Now, There have already been some prophetic things shared in Daniel, like the statue that we saw in chapter 2 from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And you'll recall that we saw there that it spoke of the coming kingdoms. And now today as we come to Daniel chapter 7, you see that we're also coming back to these same kingdoms, but through the image of an animal. Uh, Daniel 7.17 says, these great beasts are four kings. And today's passage is not just a review that uses different images. What it does is it actually takes us deeper into the details. It gives us more details than we saw in chapter 2, and it also changes the perspective. Because in chapter 2, we saw history through man's eyes. We, we saw where the kingdoms of the world were seen as this imposing image of a man. But as we come now to chapter 7, we get history from God's view, where he doesn't see the kingdoms of the world as uh, this statue. He sees them more as terrifying beasts that are raised up. And as this curtain is being pulled back more here in chapter 7, it's not just to tantalize us with more tidbits about the future. Rather, it's to give us a glimpse of God in his glory as he sits on his throne in heaven, as he shows us that he is indeed the one who's in control of history. So as we're going through this passage today, that's what I want you to remember. We're going to cover a lot of details, and we're going to get down into the weeds or go scuba diving versus water skiing. And because of that, uh, I know that it can be overwhelming if you haven't studied much about prophecy or the end times. So I want to tell you two things. First, everything that you see on the screen will be on our website on Monday. When we repost the sermon and the slides, they're all there. So you don't have to take pictures or write fervently to try to look at everything that we're covering. You can go back and and recover these passages. Look at all of the references that I'll have up on those slides where you can absorb this a little more slowly. And the second thing I want you to do is not to be overwhelmed by the details. Instead, what I want you to be overwhelmed with is a sense of who God is as we see just what he's revealed and as we see that he is truly the one who is in control of history. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin in Daniel 7, reading verses 1 through 3. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and he related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. 
and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Now in the scriptures, the sea is used in places as a metaphor to speak of the mass of humanity. We see that in Isaiah chapter 17 and verses 12 through 13 and Isaiah 57, 20. In chapters 13 and 17 of the book of Revelation, the sea is connected with the mass of humanity that the Antichrist comes up out of, which we'll see today is one of the things that Daniel reveals for us. There are times the sea speaks of a literal body of water, but what we're looking at here is a picture of humanity. And so as these individuals and kingdoms come up out of the sea, they're pictured as animals. Now, this is something we do in our day. When you think of America, what, what animal or bird represents our country? An eagle, right? China's represented by a dragon, Russia by a bear. Uh, you have the lion to represent, you know, England. And so as we're looking here, these animals represent these various kingdoms that are coming. And in verse 4, we're told that Babylon, the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Now, archaeologists have uncovered many pictures of lions in the ruins of Babylon. And here you see one from the Ishtar Gate. And you'll remember last week in Daniel chapter 6, we saw there was a lion's den right there in the city. And so uh, those in that day understood the, the lion represented Babylon. Now we're told here as well that it has the wings of an eagle. And this is combining some of the characteristics showing the power, speed, and reach that represented Babylon in that day. Now we're told the wings though were plucked. And what this is representing is what we saw back in chapter 4. You'll remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king over Babylon, the greatest of the kings in Babylon, was humbled. As he took credit for all the glory of Babylon, God humbled him as he was cast down like the beast of a field, and he ate grass for seven years. And then when he acknowledged who God was, when he humbled himself and said, the God of heaven is greater than I am, God lifted him back to his feet. He restored his sanity. He restored the kingdom. And so that's what's being described here uh, when the, the wings of the lion are removed and then it's put back on its feet and given the mind of a man. Now, some will say because Daniel's dream, you notice it took place in the days of Belshazzar. Belshazzar, you'll remember, was the king who came after Nebuchadnezzar. His father gave him the throne. And so you can say, well, Daniel's just repeating history here and passing it off as prophecy. But if that's what you're thinking, I want you to keep looking at verse 5 because there are details given of other yet future kingdoms. It says, And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Now, the bear here represents the combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And you'll remember that we saw the Medes came to power, but the Persians, who were allies and part of the kingdom, soon overshadowed uh, media in, in their greatness and what they did. This is why this bear is kind of raised up on one side, showing the dominance of one part of the kingdom over the other. When we get to Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see the kingdom there is pictured as a ram. And it also shares the same description of the characteristic because in Daniel 8.3, it says, Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And so here, God is showing Daniel this next kingdom to come 
would, would have this dual characteristic with one being greater than the other. The three ribs in its mouth point to the large kingdoms of Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt that were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Now, there were additional kingdoms that they conquered, which is why the bear is told to devour more meat because it continued to conquer others. But these were three very significant kingdoms that they conquered. Now, as we're reading this, I want you to remember that it reminds us God is in control. You know, it's so easy right now to just uh, look at all that's happening in the world and, and wonder where is God and what is he doing. And it tells us God is where he's always been. He's seated on the throne of heaven. He's in control of what is happening in history. It says that he, he raised up the Babylonians, which you remember he sent to Jerusalem to capture the Jews as judgment and bring them back. And then ultimately they're going to be restored to the land. And then it shows that when God raised Babylon to the peak of power, God then clipped its wings. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and then he replaced it with the, the next kingdom to come. And now he says there is another kingdom that will come as well, because verse 6 says, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, we saw in chapter 2, this coming kingdom is Greece. And, and it's pictured here as being like a leopard, which is an animal known for its speed, its swiftness. And it's even amplified by the fact it has four wings on its back. And historians tell us, even in our day, how amazing it was to see the speed at which Alexander the Great conquered the known world. And so this is the picture of Greece, the four heads that are seen on this beast represent what happened when Alexander the Great died and his kingdom was divided among his four generals and I want you to remember these are things being revealed in the days of Belshazzar which means it was 500 years before these events happened and it shows the detail of what God revealed and as you think about that I want you to 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 know that God is in control you know in November People are worried about what's going to happen here in the U.S. with the election. And we as Christians should be in prayer. We should be participating. We should be doing as God leads us as believers. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't need to worry about what's happening because God is in control. He already knows who the next president is going to be. He knows who the next Supreme Court justice is going to be. He knows what is to come. And we can have peace as believers as we rest in that. Verses 7 through 8 tell us, Daniel says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and it crushed and it trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled up out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, this next beast is different and it's more terrifying than all the ones before. And as we're trying to figure out who is this, what is this pointing to? Um, remember what I've shared before is that we let scripture interpret scripture. The Bible is the guide to show us what we're looking at. And when you look at the book of Revelation, you find a parallel passage that tells us about what's happening. In Revelation chapter 13 and verses 1 through 2, it says, And he stood on the sand of the seashore, 
And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Notice the the combination of all the characteristics of the previous kingdoms that are in view. As each subsequent kingdom comes up, it encompasses the area of all the ones before. So as we're looking at this revived Roman Empire that's to come, we know it encompasses uh, not only this territory, but we'll see a little bit later all of the, the planet Earth, all of the kingdoms of the entire world. Now in the end times, there's what's called the unholy trinity. We have the holy trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Satan, who's known as the devil and many other names, likes to counterfeit who God is. Remember, he's seeking God's glory. And so in the end times, we have an unholy trinity of three different individuals. There's Satan, the devil. There's somebody called the beast. And then there is the Antichrist, also known as the man of lawlessness. And so what we're reading about here in Daniel is we see where more than one of these of the unholy trinity are coming together for what's happening. And in Revelation 13 and in our passage, there's more than one of these at work. And in Daniel 7, 8, we see that this is the Antichrist because he's the little horn that rises out of the fourth beast, which is tied to this revived Roman Empire. And this Antichrist is going to be the human leader over the ten-nation confederacy. This is going back to the ten toes of the statue that we saw in chapter 2. And it, it remember, it's the revived Roman Empire. Revelation 17, 8 tells us this. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. Now, that's important to understand the abyss because this is where we're able to identify Satan in this because Satan is the one we'll see who is bound and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years in a little bit. So he's, he was and he is not, and he's about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast, that he was and is not and will come. Now, remember, he comes out of the area that Rome had been in. And this is why some people will look at a modern map and say, okay, the geographic area that encompasses the old Roman Empire is where we see uh, the the European Union. You have the nations. So people are saying, well, is it one of these? Uh, Are these the ten nations? And others will say, well, the Vatican's there in Rome. So is it it the Catholic Church? Is it this and that? Friends, I'm going to tell you, nobody knows. If they tell you they know, they don't know. There's one person who knows God in heaven. It's not important for us to be able to label who these individuals are, what the kingdoms are. What's important for us to understand here, the purpose of what's being revealed, is that God says they are going to give their power to the Antichrist, to the one who is going to come. And so this is what is is taking place here. They allow the Antichrist to come to power. Daniel 7, 24 through 25 tells us this. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will rise after them, and he will be different than the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings, and he will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. 
Now, we're going to talk about what the time times and half a time are in a moment. But what this is telling us is this is during the tribulation. And so those that are being worn down that belong to God are the tribulation believers, those who come to faith during this time as Satan is attacking the, uh, the Jews and as he's attacking the believers in Christ. We find a parallel passage in Revelation 17 and verses 12 through 14. It says, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have, here's the purpose, these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. So as Daniel's being shown what's happening, it's not just in his day. It's not just the kingdom that he's, he's in currently or even the ones that are to come for the next couple hundred years. We are being shown the things that are still future for us today in 2000 and 2020. God is saying, I'm showing you what is still yet to come in the end times. Daniel's being given this, this broad view of all of history, of all of the end time events. And this is why we see that there's also a, a view of what's happening in heaven in Daniel 7, 9 through 10. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. So Daniel's given this vision, literally into heaven. And he sees, seated on the throne as the Ancient of Days. This is a title for God. And when, da when Daniel calls God the Ancient of Days, it's a title that means God is eternal. The scriptures tell us God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. God is the beginning and the end. He's eternal. In contrast to the kingdoms we're reading about that rise up and then are destroyed. What Daniel's being told is God's kingdom is eternal. It continues on. There's not only a contrast to the earthly kingdoms that come and go, but there's a contrast to the Antichrist who's frightening and filthy. And he says, in contrast to that, look at who God is. He's, he's pure. He's holy. He has wisdom. He's white as snow. His hair is like pure wool. The throne that God is on has wheels that are ablaze. Now, if you're picturing a wheelchair with flaming wheels, you don't have it. Uh, you need to look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and verses 13 through 21, because there it describes further what this throne looks like. It says there are four wheels that are intertwined. It says that they, are, they, they have eyes all over them. It's said to be alive. And what these intertwined wheels do is it allows the throne to be able to move in any direction. It can ascend, it can descend, it can move in all directions. And, and all around this is, is fire that is coming out. You know, Daniel's trying to describe the impossible, which is why you see the word like a lot. He says it's like this and like that. Daniel's given this, this overwhelming vision. And all around this are tens of thousands of heavenly beings. They're worshiping God. They're waiting for him to execute judgment. And that's what Daniel 7.10 tells us, is it says the court sat and the books were open. 
There's another place in the book of Revelation where books are opened in judgment. And that's in Revelation chapter 20. In verse 12 it says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now that's talking about the great white throne judgment where the unbelievers who have rejected Jesus, that's why their name is not in the book of life, are judged from the books, the resume of all they've done, good and bad. And the Bible is clear that everyone there who is depending upon how good they are will be judged and sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. And so that's for the unbelievers who have rejected God and his gift of grace. They said, we can do it our way. And he says, fine, then you get to pay the penalty of death yourself. And what Daniel sees here is that it's not just unbelievers who are going to be sent to the lake of fire. The unholy trinity ends up in the lake of fire as well. Some people think that, well, you know, Satan's going to rule over hell. Friends, that is not at all what happens. The Bible is clear that Satan and the beast and the man of lawlessness, these guys are all going to be thrown into hell to be judged for all eternity. They go into the lake of fire as well. This is what we see in verses 11 through 14. It says, and I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So as every kingdom falls from power... The next kingdom comes and absorbs them, and that kingdom is destroyed, and on and on it goes through history. But when it comes to God's kingdom, it says he will incorporate all of the earth, and his kingdom will never pass away. He will not lose power. The, the sa final satanic kingdom is defeated. It ceases to exist altogether, and it's replaced by God's kingdom. And this judgment comes through the coming of the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a messianic title that points to Jesus Christ. It's a very important title, and it was Jesus' favorite title of himself. You, you find during the trial before the Jewish courts, as they were trying to find grounds to crucify Jesus, this is what Matthew 26, 63 through 64 tells us. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us, whether you are the Christ, that means Messiah, whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is Jesus Christ. And he says, I am the son of God. I am the promised Messiah and I am coming back. Now, when it says you'll see him coming on the clouds, this is not speaking of the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, we have what's called the rapture. The Latin word rapturo means to be caught up. And that's why we call it that because 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17 says that as believers, we will be caught up 
to meet the Lord in the air. Now that's important to understand. Jesus does not physically return to the earth at the rapture. He comes partway to heaven and Christians who are living are raptured. Believers who have already died, their souls are already in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, but their physical remains are here on earth. They will be raptured, reunited with their souls, and they will have their eternal resurrection bodies. And those who are raptured go back to heaven. Now, we're going to be coming back at the second coming as the armies of heaven. And that's what is spoken about here when it says the son of man will be coming on the clouds. This is speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you some slides here to help you understand all that we're talking about because I I know pictures and visuals help. And as I said, these slides are going to be up on our website on Monday. So to understand all that's happening Uh, Remember, we've been talking about these various beasts that represent the kingdoms. There were three that came before the cross of Jesus Christ. And then when we get to Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we're going to walk back through these timelines and and we're going to see mind-blowing detail. Down to the very day, the very day that Jesus was crucified, God revealed through Daniel. And so that's what's being talked about there in Daniel 9.26 when it says the Messiah will be cut off. Jesus was crucified on a cross under what kingdom was in power at that time? Anybody? Rome. So we're dealing with the beast, and Rome is the power that is now in power according to the prophecy when Christ would be killed. And so after Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was buried in the tomb. Three days later, he rose from the dead. The scriptures tell us he walked the earth physically for 40 days, appearing to more than 500 witnesses. And then Jesus told the disciples, I have to go and ascend to heaven so that the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, can come to you. That happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and that's when the church was born. And so theologians say that we are in what is called the church age right now. And so we had the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we are in this church age until the next event happens, which is called the rapture. And so this is the event that will set off, will end the church age and will move into the next uh, events that are occurring. Now, you can see, uh, well, what's going to happen is the revived Roman Empire will be seen at this time because then we have the tribulation period. And the tribulation is a period of seven years. Again, when we get to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we're going to see it talked about as this final week, the 70th seven that is yet to be fulfilled. 69 of the 77s have already occurred, and there's this one seven-year period to come. Now, you see that I have the rapture occurring in what I term the pre-tribulational rapture. That means it happens before the tribulation. And there are people who view the, the rapture of saints happening mid-trib, post-trib. The reason I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture is because the Bible tells us this in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in Revelation 3, 10 through 11, it says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, that's the physical earth, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ returns at what's called his second coming. Remember, I told you it's different than the rapture. The rapture is where we meet the Lord in the air. The second coming is when Jesus physically returns to the earth. You can read Zechariah 14, and it talks about his feet physically standing on the Mount of Olives. It will be split in half. It is at the physical return of Christ, his second coming, that the battle of Armageddon takes place. And this is where the nations will have gathered to try to destroy God's people in Israel, and Jesus returns at that moment. Now, at the tribulation, um, at, after the tribulation and the second coming, we begin what's called the millennial kingdom. Now, let me say something about those who go into the millennial kingdom. Remember that we will have been raptured as Christians and we return as the armies of heaven physically to the earth. So there's that one class of resurrected believers who have their permanent resurrection bodies. There are also those who physically are living on the earth just as we are right now. All Christians will have been raptured before the tribulation, but during the tribulation, many will come to faith in Christ. The Bibles are not raptured. Sermons like this one are not raptured. People are able to come to understanding and faith in Christ. It will be a terrible time of suffering. Many will be martyred, but some of those will physically be alive at the second coming of Christ. Satan will be thrown into the abyss. The, the two beasts we're about to see will go into the lake of fire, but there will be those physically who enter into the millennium. All non-believers are killed at that moment, but all Christians physically go into the millennium. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because the Bible says as raptured believers, when we get to heaven, we're not married like we are here. But there are people physically living on the earth who are married, who are having children, whose children are having children, whose children are having children for a thousand years. That means generations will be born here on the earth. And there will be some of those who do not come to faith in Christ. As hard as that is for you to believe that people can physically see Jesus on the earth and still not come to faith in him, that is what will happen. The tribulation tells us when they see Christ on the throne, they'll shake their fist at him. And so at the end of the thousand years, there will be what's called the battle of Gog and Magog. And this is where Satan will be released and he will come back and try to have one final rebellion. But before we get there, uh, let me read you about God being in control about what's happening. It tells us here in Daniel 7, 21 through 22, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came. These are the tribulation believers. And judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. That's us returning at the second coming as the raptured believers. Now, as I said earlier, it's easy to be discouraged in the times in which we live. You can look at all that's happening and say, why are the wicked winning? Why isn't God brought about justice? Why haven't things changed? And brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to remind you the story is still unfolding. God is not done. And God will win. And God will make all things right. Victory is coming. 
God is in control, and in his perfect plan, he gives Satan control for seven years here on earth during the tribulation. Verses 23 through 25 tell us, Thus he said, the fourth beast, this is a revived Roman Empire, will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. And it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings, and he will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in time and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, what, we're ref- what is being referred to here is a time is one year. Times would be two years, and half of a time would be six months. So this is a period of three and a half years. Remember, the tribulation is seven years. So what this is telling us is we're in the second half of the tribulation. And, and we see in Revelation 11.2 and Revelation 13.5 that this period of time is also called 42 months. Now, it's not a 365-day calendar like we go off the Gregorian calendar. Jewish prophetic calendars are 360 days. And we see that. Remember, let Scripture interpret Scripture. We see that in Revelation 12.6 where it tells us 1,260 days is what equals the time times and half a time. And when we get to Daniel 9.24 and we look at the, the details down to the very day, you'll see where all of this comes into play again. And so what is happening here is at the midpoint of the tribulation, we have what's called the abomination of desolation. When we get to Daniel 9.27, we see that there is what's called the abomination of desolation. And this is where the Antichrist reveals himself for who he is. The temple will have been rebuilt during the tribulation. Worship will be reinstituted. And Satan demands to be worshipped as God. And his representative there in the temple is where he defiles the temple and demands to be worshipped as God. And this is called the abomination of desolation. And you see it happens at the midpoint, or take seven years divided by two, you get three and a half years. You see the detail at which God is revealing the things that are to come. Now, this is going to be done, uh, Daniel, Daniel 7.26 says, but the court will sit for judgment in his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Now this is done as we saw in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, when Jesus Christ returns at his second coming. And he will take his proper place on the Davidic throne, physically reigning from Jerusalem. And as you look further into the scriptures, you see in Daniel 7, 11, and in Daniel 19, 19, and 20, the beast and the false prophet are sent to the lake of fire. Remember, there's this unholy trinity. And so you have two of the three that at this point are sent to hell, what we call the lake of fire. Satan is put in the abyss, which Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 tells us. He's bound for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom period, and he's cast into the abyss. And a parallel passage that tells us what's happening is Revelation 19, 19 through 20. It says, and I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized with him, the false prophet who performed the signs of his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. 
these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns, burns with brimstone. And so this is the second coming of Christ when these events happen at the battle of Armageddon. Now, as I said, Satan is reserved for further judgment for a thousand years. And this is what Daniel 7.18 tells us is happening. It says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. As you look at Daniel 7.27, it adds to this. It says, then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Now, I told you that Satan is released at the end of a thousand years. And what Satan does is he regathers, remember, these unbelievers who are on the earth. And that's when the battle of Gog and Magog happens in the scriptures. And God says, I'm done with rebellion. I'm done with Satan. And he casts Satan into the lake of fire. And then he's going to destroy the heavens and the earth that have been corrupted with sin from the days of Adam and Eve. He will destroy, the scriptures tell us, with fire, the heavens and the earth. We read about the great white throne judgment that then takes place. It says that heaven and earth fled away and all the dead, the great and the small, are standing before God for this great white throne judgment that we talked about. And this is where all the unbelievers from the beginning of time go before Jesus Christ who's seated on the throne. And he will be the one who judges. And when it says the book is open, the book of life, he says, you rejected my gift of grace. You did not receive me as your savior. So then God opens the books, plural, and he says, let's look at all the good and the bad you did. And everyone who is there has sinned. Remember Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We talked earlier with Belshazzar how he was weighed and found wanting. And we talked about how all of us have fallen short of that weight, that standard of God and his glory. And so everyone at the great white throne judgment has one destination, the lake of fire. They go to hell because they rejected the gift of God's grace. Friends, this isn't a turn or burn, shake or bake, fly or fry type of message. I'm not trying to scare you into heaven, but I do want you to know what God has revealed. And he has revealed very clearly that his son was coming. The Messiah would be cut off. He would be crucified to put an end to enmity, to pay the penalty of death, as we'll see in Daniel 9. And he says, I offer you that gift of grace. And if you will receive my gift of my son as the payment in your place, you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He says, but if you reject my son, if you reject his payment in your place, you have to make the payment. You have to pay the penalty of the second death. You physically died already to be before the great white throne judgment. The second death is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And he says, everybody who has rejected his gift of grace will be sent to hell. And at the end of that, the eternal state happens. The new heavens and the new earth are created. And we as Christians go into eternity with God. There is no more rebellion. Satan is in, in the lake of fire for all eternity. All non-believers are in the lake of fire. The corrupted heavens and earth have been wiped away. Everything is in perfection. And there will never again be rebellion or sin. And we go into what is called the eternal state. 
I know that there's been a lot that we've talked about today. As I said, I know it's discouraging for some as they look at the world in which we live, but brothers and sisters in Christ, the story is not yet over. God wins. And God wants you to be with him for all eternity. He gave his son Jesus to you so that if you will receive him, you can be with him for all eternity. And he invites you to do so. So if you've never accepted Christ as your savior, I invite you to to do so, to accept his gift of grace to you. I want to close with this final illustration for those of us who know the Lord and who are living in this time. There was a missionary by the name of Henry C. Morrison. He had served God for 40 years in Africa, and then he contracted tuberculosis. And the doctor said, you have to go home. You have to go back to America to die. There's nothing we can do for you. And so he was sent back on a ship. And as he was traveling back to the U.S. on this ship, it just so happened by chance that Teddy Roosevelt was on that same boat. Roosevelt had been in Africa on a safari. And he had been on this hunting trip, and he was returning to the U.S. And when the boat was pulling into the harbor, Morrison, who had not seen America in 40 years, his wife said, Henry, let's go up on deck and see America as we pull into port. So he gathered the strength he had. He went up onto the the ship, and as he looked out over the railing, he saw crowds of thousands and thousands who were there cheering. And they weren't cheering for Henry. They were cheering for Roosevelt. And Morrison wrote in his journal these words. He said, I was overwhelmed by bitterness. I had given my life to serve God, but there was not one person there to welcome me home. But there were thousands welcoming home Roosevelt from a trip where he had been shooting elephants. Morrison goes on to say, as I angrily stood there, suddenly the heavens opened, and I saw a crowd of saints and angels that could not be counted, and I heard a voice that said, Henry, you're not home yet. Henry, you're not home yet. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not home. The Bible tells us our citizenship is in heaven. This earthly planet is not our home. Yes, we are here to be salt and light. We are here to do what we can to spread the good news of the gospel and to be a preservative in a dead and dying world. But friends, we are not home. This is not our place of permanent residence. There is a day coming where we will be home. And we will be rewarded in heaven. During the millennial kingdom, we will have responsibilities for how we've lived our lives. We don't go before the great white throne judgment as Christians. We go before the Bema seat where our life is judged and we are rewarded. And that's why you read about the parable of the talents in other passages that say, be an authority over this many cities or that many. You will have places of reward and responsibility in the kingdom for how you lived your life here on earth. As Daniel has shown all these things, verse 28 says, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming to me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Daniel knows that in the end, God and his people win. But Daniel was still distressed because he says, I see what is coming. I see the suffering. I see where Satan will be in control for a period of time in God's perfect plan and people will suffer. And Daniel is distressed. And for us as believers today, I don't want you to walk out of here saying, well, Roger said we don't have to worry about the world or our friends or our our non-saved neighbors or family members because in the end we win. We do, brothers and sisters. But we should be concerned for those who do not yet know the Lord. 
those who will face this terrible time of tribulation. Many will come to faith in Christ if they're part of God's called. And yet, do you want your friends, family members, those you go to school with or work with to go through that? God says, during this time, we have the opportunity to be messengers, to share the good news of who Jesus is, what he did, and what is to come. So as we leave today, would we leave thinking about those who don't yet know Jesus? Think of one or two people specifically for you to begin to pray about and and then to share your faith with them so they don't have to go through these terrible times that are to come. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us, that you indeed are in control of history. God, you know what is coming. You know when things will happen. You know who those are that you've, you've called. And you've called on us as those who are believers in Christ to share the good news of the gospel, to be those messengers, those mouthpiece that you've placed in, in places so people can hear the good news of the gospel. God, we know you are the one who draws all men and women to yourself. It's not through our cleverness of speech or our presentation. It is through the prompting of you, Holy Spirit, who draws them. But you have given us to be those messengers. You tell us that you call on us to share the good news. So would we be faithful? Would we tell others that we know at home, at school, at work, who you are and what is to come? And God, we ask that you would be drawing them to yourself. Thank you, Father, that you are faithful. Thank you that you love us where you tell us that you sent your son Jesus to die for us even while we were yet sinners. You demonstrated your love and that you died for us, Jesus. We thank you for that gift of grace. May we be messengers of that grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, I know we covered a lot today. We'll be going back through this. Again, these things will be on the website on Monday if you want to review them. Uh, Go in peace to love and serve the Lord, knowing he is in control. He's the Prince of Peace. God bless you all.